The book of Psalms have held a special place in the heart of the church since the beginning. In fact, the early church father, Athanasius, was even so bold to say that although most scriptures speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. And maybe you've experienced some of that. That the Psalms kind of have this unique ability not just to speak to us, but they speak on our behalf. When we don't know what to feel, they give us feelings. When we don't know how to go through suffering, they give us the language for that. And this has not been experienced more that I know of in any life than in a guy named Natan Sharansky. If you don't know Natan Sharansky, he was a human rights activist for the Jewish people in the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s. And in the spring of 1977, he was found out by the KGB. He was tried secretly and then arrested, sentenced to 13 years in prison. But just by happenstance, on the eve of his arrest, his wife had sent him a little black book that would end up becoming his constant companion and friend during his time in prison. That little black book was a book of Psalms. And for the first three years, he didn't have much access to it. The prison guards had taken it away. But after begging and pleading over time, he convinced them that this little book wouldn't do much harm. It was a Hebrew book, a book of Jewish folk tales, and please give him this little book. And they gave it back to him. And Natan wasn't particularly a religious man, even though his wife was. But mostly out of necessity, he started to read that book of Psalms over and over and over again, memorizing it, writing it out, thinking about it day and night. And to his amazement, even though he wasn't particularly religious, he found an extreme kinship with King David. In the prayers and songs of King David, it gave him a language from what he was going through. It gave him a language of a suffering soul. And it even gave him a language that there might be hope on the other side. After nine years in prison, the Soviet Union decided to let him go, mostly as a PR stunt for good world exposure to, to letting go this human rights activist. And so they escorted him to an airport outside Moscow that would take him to East Germany where he'd finally experienced freedom for the first time in nine years. And when he got out of the car, all the photographers lined the walkway up into the plane. And as he was walking, about to get on the plane, he looked back and asked the guards, hey, where is my psalm book? And they said, you've received everything that you need. You will not be receiving back your psalm book. To which he quickly replied, I'm not leaving until I get my psalm book. They again responded, you're not getting your psalm book. So then he fell down into the snow, screaming over and over again, give me back my psalm book. And this wasn't really the PR stunt that the Soviet Union wanted. (laughs) This wasn't what they imagined was this man screaming and shouting, give me back my psalm book. So out of embarrassment, they obliged and they gave it back to him. And when he got on the plane, he opened the psalms to fulfill a promise that he made to God in prison at the first psalm that he wanted to read when he was released was the psalm we're reading this morning. He wanted to read Psalm 30 because in his first act of freedom, he wanted to thank the Lord for his deliverance. I don't know if you realize it this morning, but you need your psalm book too. You desperately need your psalm book, especially Psalm 30, because Psalm 30, no matter what you're going through this morning, it's going to speak joy for you. Psalm 30 is going to show us that joy is not something that we do. It's something that's done to us. 
In fact, David is going to teach us three things about joy. First, he's going to teach us that joy's destruction and prosperity. He's going to teach us, secondly, that joy's deliverance is through the pit. And third, he's going to teach us that joy's destiny will be praised. And I'll go through those one by one. First, joy's destruction and prosperity. Look back at Psalm 30 with the question, what stills David's joy in this psalm? I don't know if you noticed this when we first read it, but this psalm is not chronological. It doesn't follow a nice pattern of events. In fact, Psalm 30 starts in the present. Verse 1 through 5, he's talking about his deliverance, this amazing testimony how God rescued him from the pit. But then in verse 6, you have this abrupt change. David takes us from his present praising back to the past, a time before when David wasn't praising, but pleading. And that shift in verse 6 is abrupt, and it's abrupt for a reason. Because David's trying to get your attention. He's trying to jar you to make you lean in and listen to not make the same mistake that he did. In verse 6 and 7, he is giving us a warning of what will steal our joy. Look back at verse 6. David says, As for me and my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And he talks about what that did to him. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain strong, but then you hid your face, and I was dismayed. What sent David to the pit? What turned the Lord's face away? It might be surprising for us this morning, but it was actually David's prosperity that stole his joy. Look back at verse 6. It's not just his prosperity, because we know prosperity, health and wealth, security and success, those aren't bad things in themselves. But what can so often happen with prosperity is what happened with David, that in his prosperity, he became prideful. In his prosperity, he said, I shall never be moved. It wasn't what we just saying that all we have comes from the Lord. It was all that I have comes from me. You see, in David's prosperity, he began to slowly, subtly think, I did all this. Instead of remembering the reality of verse 7, that it was by God's favor, by his sheer kindness, that his mountain was made strong. You see, David didn't make David strong. The Lord made David strong. But because of his great prosperity, David had forgotten that. And this has the potential to be really challenging us to us this morning. Because the world will tell you the exact opposite. The world will tell you what will destroy your joy this morning is not your prosperity, but actually your poverty. What destroys joy is not having too much in life, it's actually having too little. To have joy, you need to have more and more and more because with great prosperity will come great joy. But heed the wisdom of Psalm 30. Prosperity can often destroy our joy because in having it all, we forget where it all came from. In having it all, we slowly forget that we actually have need. The, the Titanic has been in the news recently for obvious reasons with the travesty of the submarine. And it brought up all this renewed fascination with the Titanic. And we're all fascinated by it, myself included. Fascinated with this great ship and this great tragedy that hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic. But if you know the history of it all, you know that, yes, of course, an iceberg is what sunk the Titanic. 
But what really sunk the Titanic started way before it even lifted off. Most historians will tell you that what sunk the Titanic was its pride. In fact, as Captain Edward Smith, he began working on boats way back in the 1870s. In 1875, he enjoyed working on boats so much that he earned his certificate to be a captain. And for the next 30 years, he led so many voyages, growing in confidence, growing in experience. And in 1907, five years before the Titanic sailed off, he proudly declared that modern shipbuilding has gone way beyond all the perils of the sea. Five years before the Titanic, he said, modern shipbuilding has done it all. No longer do we have to worry about the perils of the sea. Well, we all know the story. Five years later, Edward Smith was chosen to be the captain of the Titanic, a ship unlike the world has ever seen, a ship so big that some even claim that God himself could not sink it. In fact, confidence in its safety and security was so high that the 62 lifeboats that could, that could fit on it was taken away, leaving only 20, which was less than half for its occupants. And if you know the story, as the vessel sailed across the North Atlantic from Britain to the U.S. in April of 1912, the same day it sunk, the captain received six warnings of ice, and yet the speed did not decrease. Instead of slowing down, the Titanic continued to sail full speed ahead, self-assured in its prosperity, all securing its demise. The Titanic, this unsinkable ship, sunk, not because it wasn't big enough, but actually because it was too big. So big that they could perceive that nothing would ever happen to it until it did. You see, in its prosperity, everyone became prideful, and when everyone became prideful, all other warnings were ignored. And that's not just the story of the Titanic. In fact, I think we're fascinated by the Titanic because it's the story of us. The Titanic gives us a mirror into the human heart and the Bible proclaims that all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, as God's people grew in their prosperity, they slowly forgot about their God. Although God had saved them, although God sustained them, all, although God had given them everything that they have, everyone started to claim, I shall not be moved. And we do too. So I have to start out with a really personal question this morning. Psalm 30 demands it. Have you let the world's view of joy creep into your heart? Have you let the world's view of joy, that joy can only be found in prosperity, creep into your heart? Because if you have, it can be deadly. Because if joy is only found in prosperity, better health, better wealth, better circumstances, we can all, all too often slip into the pride of thinking that's all about us. And this is a real danger for us this morning because we live in a prosperous country. We go to a prosperous church and none of those things are bad in themselves. Please do not hear what I'm not saying. Prosperity is not bad in and of itself. But what David is teaching us is that our prosperity can often lead to our pride. And our pride can do a lot of things for us, but our pride will never teach us to ask for rescue. Prideful people can do a lot of things. They cannot be rescued. And that biblically is, is where joy is found. Joy is not found in our pride. It's actually found in our rescue. So let's go there next. 
We've seen joy's destruction and prosperity. Now let's look at joy's deliverance in the pit. It was David's pride that sent him to the pit, and to his surprise, it was in that pit where joy was actually going to be birthed. Verse 7, look back at it. After David's prosperity, verse 7 tells us that God hid his face, and David said, I was dismayed. And that word for dismayed is one of the strongest words in the Hebrew language for absolutely terrified. Absolutely disturbed. He was completely out of his senses that the Lord turned his face away. And when we read through this psalm, it might just take us a couple minutes, but we can tell from David's language, this was not just a couple minutes of pain and sorrow. Look back at his language. In just two verses, David goes from saying, I shall never be moved to complete and utter desperation. He's crying to the Lord. He's pleading for his mercy. Even if you look at verse 9, he's starting to resort to logic, which is no when you get really desperate. He's trying to out-argue God. He's trying to rationalize God by saying, if I die, God, then I can't praise you, and that's no good. It's better for me to be alive than dead, because if I'm alive, I can give you a testimony of praise. If I'm dead, I'll be silent. So he's getting into this rational game with God because of his utter desperation in the pit. But notice, even though David's no longer in prosperity, he's in the pit, David's joy starts to come there. And this is really important for us to know this morning, especially if you feel like you're in the pit, if you're suffering, if your sin has entangled you. David's joy does not come from an absence of suffering, but actually came through the suffering. David's joy did not sidestep pain, but actually comes through the pain. It took him going to the pit to sing God's praise. Why is that? Well, biblically speaking, joy is not primarily an emotion, even though it does include that. Biblically speaking, joy is an event. Biblically, joy happens when God does something. Joy happens in us when God moves in us. And what did God do for David? What's it say in verses 2 and 3? What God did for David is the same thing he did for us all. He rescued him. Look at verse 2. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. That word for brought up is the same word for pulling up a bucket from a deep, deep well. Do you see where David's joy came from? That God went down into that well after David and brought him up. You see, the pit reminded David that his life was a miracle. The Lord had rescued him, and he was going to spend his life shouting his praise. You see, we often think joy and sorrow are opposite, or maybe In the best of times, joy and sorrow can coexist. But the Bible goes so much farther than that. The Bible tells us that joy is actually birthed out of sorrow, which is what our New Testament passage was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, that somehow those momentary afflictions are actually producing in us an eternal joy that will last forever. You desperately need to hear this morning that joy always goes through the pit. And nowhere is this seen more clearly in American history than in the black church. And we we need to learn from the black church what it looks like to have joy in the midst of pain. Isn't that ironic? 
at the black church, the people in our country who have experienced the most deep suffering, the most deep pain, are actually ones that express the most joy? When you think about the black church, what do you think about? Praise. You think about joy, think about celebration. And don't you see that was birthed out of so much suffering? Have you ever wondered how the black church has survived? How it's made it through slave ships and plantations and beatings and Jim Crow and KKK and segregation and civil rights? How did it make it through all that? The black church has been in the pit forever. And yet, constantly what you hear from the black church is deep-rooted praise. The inside cover on your bulletin is actually one of their praise songs. The song they sang all throughout the 20th century, and it can be heard in black churches, I'm sure, all over our city this morning. This song, This Joy, and you see the lyrics there in your front cover. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it from me. Howard Thurman, the African-American scholar, he gave a lecture at Harvard University on how slaves could sing And here's what he said. The slaves made a worthless life. The life of being chattel property, somehow a life worth living. It's worth mentioning that the black church is almost certainly also the genesis of the term black joy, which never ceases to puzzle people unfamiliar with their history. It may be hard to understand What intense joy came over those who were just then learning that the God of the universe made them in his own image. That God loved them so dearly that he would take on their black flesh and die for them. And that they would one day rule with him in eternity, even judging angels. The slaves who had been told again and again that they were not even worthy of citizenship were now being told through the Bible that they are worthy of the status of children of God and their citizenship would be in heaven forever. How did the black church learn how to sing praise? The same way David learned it. They heard of a God who did not just come down to earth, but actually got into the pit with them. You see, Jesus was the true king, a king much greater than King David. And do you remember how Isaiah described him, how he was going to show up? He was going to show up as a man of sorrows. Because he, would, he was not considering himself, but always considering the sufferings of others, their sin, their struggle. And at that moment at the cross, we all need to remember and realize that his salvation did not come through some great act of power, but came through the greatest act of suffering. On the cross, Jesus did the unthinkable. He connected the highest glory and joy to the deepest suffering imaginable. And he's forever connected the two for you. The cross is the connection of how joy and sorrow go together in the Christian life and how even sorrow can produce further joy. You know Jesus could have offered himself up to any death for sins, but he chose the cross. Because the cross was not a citizen's death, it was a slave's death. And in that slave's death, he was showing just how far he was willing to go down for you. Don't you see, joy, yes, of course, it includes emotions, but it is decisively an event. 
Your joy transcends circumstances because it is rooted in the history of our God who has acted upon us through the cross. He exchanged himself for you so like you can with David, exchange your mourning for dancing. So you with David can exchange your sackcloth for gladness. That through his suffering, you might actually be able to sing for the first time in a long time. Let's end there. Let's end with our ability to sing. We've seen the destruction of joy in prosperity. We've seen the deliverance of joy through the pit. Now let's end with joy's destiny. It's going to end in praise. Look back at verse 4. After David is rescued from the pit, notice he is no longer telling us about joy. He's singing it. And he's not just singing it. He's telling us to join in in his singing this morning. Verse 4 Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And I've always wondered about this too. I've always wondered how people in the Bible and throughout history sang during suffering. How David in the Psalms sang while he's being chased for his life by Saul. How Paul could sing while he's being beaten and in prison. How the early church, it talks about their martyrs, would sing on their way to the gallows on their way to being frozen to death in, in cold waters. Even recently, the New York Times posted an article about Ukraine. And in the midst of the war, the children's choirs are, are starting back up. They're wanting to sing. In the midst of sirens and bomb shelters, they want to sing. So how do you sing during suffering? How do you learn to sing during a war or trial or cancer Well, David tells us, verse 5, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you know why you can sing this morning? Even in unrelenting suffering? Because just as the darkest night has to give way to the dawn of morning, so one day your suffering will give way too. Your suffering will not make it past the morning of God's resurrection when he comes back to remake the new heavens and the new earth. David ends Psalm 30 in verse 12 with singing thanks to the Lord forever. Because our suffering might have the word on us today, but our songs will have the word for eternity. In our singing right now, we are just practicing our destiny. That's all we're doing. When morning will finally come and we'll say goodbye to suffering forevermore. For your final application, I need you to listen to me. Especially if you're suffering in here. Whether it's suffering from your own sin, whether it's suffering from your circumstances, whether it's suffering from sickness. As your pastor... I cannot promise you that you'll be healed like David in this life. And believe me, as I was reading the passage this week, I so wish I could promise you that. Especially for those that are experiencing chronic pain and chronic suffering, where there doesn't seem much hope in it ever going away. I know you give anything to make your suffering stop. And I can't promise you that it will. I can't promise you that your suffering will go away in this life. But I can promise you It will go away forever. I can promise you that it will not last forever. 
It might last your entire earthly life. It might get worse before it gets better, but it will not last forever. Hold fast to Psalm 30 and realize that your destiny is not pain. Your destiny is praise. As sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning is as sure as a Christian's joy will be forever. In fact, at the end of it all, Revelation 21 and 22 actually tells us there isn't going to be a sun rising in the morning because there will no longer be a need for the sun to rise because there is no night. Listen to Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And this is incredible. They will see his face, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign with him forever and ever. Do you see now why you can sing? Do you see now why you can sing even in the suffering? Because we don't know what our lives will face, but we do know where we're headed. If Christ is your Savior, you're headed to praise, not pain. You're headed to singing, not suffering. You're headed full launch into your Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come in all his glory, and he himself will wipe away your tears. Let's pray and then praise his name. Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for the ways that you speak to us and cling to us and come to us in our pit. Lord, I pray for those right now that are so much darkness. They're struggling in the pit and suffering and sin and they don't see any hope for tomorrow. Lord, remind them again of their suffering Savior and that as his suffering led to glory, So theirs will too. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now let's pray as the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debt, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.